And let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would now open up our hearts and minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, would your voice be louder and more defining than all of the other voices around us? Would your voice break deep into our hearts and go down into the very crevices of our soul, God? And would you speak to us and would you transform us and would you strengthen us so that we could be your faithful people in this world? And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So this week, like many of you cynical Americans, I began President's Day by reading an article in the LA Times by Nick Goldberg entitled, How the White House Has Become a Path to Obscene Wealth. And throughout the article, the uh, author mentioned various of our former presidents. Wow, that's a terrible picture. Let's take that off. They, they look bad. They look better in real life, trust me. Um, but it, it, was, it was noting just how these presidents have used the White House as this pathway into this obscene, you know, riches. And uh, so they noted, of course, the Trump merch, you know, uh, mega hats and such. And of course, the, the, the ridiculously large speaking fees. I understand that George W. Bush uh, can generate $150,000 to $200,000 per speech. Uh, President Obama generates $400,000 per speech. The Clintons, between 2001 and 2015, generated $150 million in speaking fees. And I thought to myself, I'm in the wrong public speaking business. <laughs> but there was one president, former president who has not generated wealth after his presidency, and that is Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter still lives in the same humble residence that he did, you know, from before the time he entered the White House. Uh, he teaches a Sunday school class at his church just about every week, and I don't think they pay him $150,000 per time. And incidentally, Jimmy Carter is also the one who popularized a phrase that many of us have come to associate very much with what it means to be a Christian. He identified himself in the late 70s as, quote, a born-again Christian. And I think he, he used that phrase, and it is lodged in the popular imagination of most American people. And uh, m most Americans think about a born-again Christian as a certain type of Christian. And some people even think about a born-again as a type of person. You know, oh, you're the born-again type, you know? And, and, and it's the type of person you might not want to be, or maybe the type of person you might not want to live next door to. And some people, of course, associate it with a certain type of person who might be narrow-minded or judgmental or maybe a little too aggressive about trying to convert people or maybe that type of person that needs a cathartic kind of emotional experience, or uh, maybe somebody who can't make decisions for themselves, and so they need a religious authority or maybe tight moral structures in their life in order to guide them. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people associate kind of those ideas with this idea of born again, because when Jesus coined the term, he almost didn't have any of that in mind when he was thinking of it, when he used this word. 
And so uh, what the question we want to ask, though, is what does Jesus mean when he talks about the new birth? What does it mean to be born again? Now, a couple weeks ago, we began a new series entitled Encounters. And throughout this series, we're looking at people who encountered Jesus and through their encounter with Jesus were dramatically changed. And this is just what happens when a person meets Jesus, that we are changed in the meeting of this profound, transcendent, beautiful embodiment of the love of God. And so too, throughout Jesus' life, when he met people, when he encountered them, they were dramatically changed. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we're looking at various and sundry different people who encountered Jesus and were transformed. And today, we're going to look at Jesus encountering a man named Nicodemus, a man who he looks at in the face and says, you must be born again. And in this text, Jesus really unpacks for us this idea of the new birth and what it's all about. And so we're going to talk together about what it means to be born again underneath three headings. Uh, Number one, I want to talk about who it's for. Second, uh, what it it involves, like what it means. And then thirdly, how we can experience it. So number one, who is the new birth for? Look at the text, John chapter 3, verse 1. It begins like this. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So who is Nicodemus? Well, I want you to see in the text that Nicodemus, number one, is a Pharisee. And what is a Pharisee? Well, a Pharisee was somebody who uh, had high moral standards. Uh, They were Bible-believing people. They were the closest thing to religious fundamentalists in the ancient uh, world of Jesus. And so Nicodemus was a Pharisee. But he wasn't just a Pharisee. A little bit later, uh, Jesus identifies him as the teacher of Israel. So he's not just a Pharisee. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a teacher of Pharisees, a teacher of the people. And so he was something of uh, what might be a modern-day celebrity pastor. And uh, everybody knew who he was. And he was well-known for his teaching, his acumen, his ability. He probably had some of those cool, you know, preacher sneakers, um, or sandals, um, but, uh, but, but he, he, he's this dynamic teacher in Israel, and it says in the text that he is a, he's a ruler, and uh, it probably indicates that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was a religious and public uh, uh, um, a political group in the first century world of Jesus who had power and influence among both the Jews as well as the Romans. And so this man was a pillar in his community. He is upright, he's upstanding. And he comes to Jesus, the text says, by night. Now, why is, Jesus, why is he coming to Jesus by night? Well, uh, maybe he was afraid to approach Jesus in the daytime because it was kind of dangerous to be associated with Jesus. I mean, Jesus was doing a lot of things that was upsetting the status quo, and there were some people that wanted to even kill Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus by night maybe to uh, hide that he went to, to see him to do it in secret. But maybe he came to Jesus by night because you know, Jesus worked a lot during the day. 
He was very busy. And so, uh, you know, if you wanted to get some alone time with Jesus and have extended conversation, you know, maybe night was just the best time to do it. But whatever the case, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he approaches Jesus in a very respectful way because he says, Rabbi, he, he, he approaches Jesus with this term of respect. And this is unusual because uh, Nicodemus was no doubt an older rabbi than Jesus. Jesus was in his early 30s. Nicodemus was significantly older. You couldn't get into the Sanhedrin unless you had some, you know, some clout, some status, and you were older. Uh, in the, the little uh, document or the little movie series right now called The Chosen, uh, they have depicted uh, Nicodemus this way. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, creative liberties that are taken, you know, in any kind of uh, uh, account of the life of Jesus that's done in the modern world. But this one, I think, gets this detail right. Here is Nicodemus, the older, kind of the older statesman. And he comes to Jesus, in a sense, in a posture of humility. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. It's as if he's saying, look, um, I know God has his hand on your life. We've seen the signs that you're doing, and nobody can do this unless God is with them. Clearly, uh, I've got something to learn from, from you, and, and no doubt you've got something to learn from me. You know, we're both fellow rabbis. We can learn from each other. And so he approaches Jesus with this great term of respect, but notice how Jesus responds to him. You know, if... if, if um, if somebody were to approach me and say, Rabbi, you know, we know that you're a great pastor, come from God, I might look back at them and say, well, thank you, Nicodemus. You know, I've heard a lot of great things about you as well, you know. Let's have a conversation. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus looks at him and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, we're both busy. You know, I, I know you're a busy person. I'm busy. Let's just cut through the chase. I know what you want. You're a Pharisee. And, and, and I know you Pharisees, you have ordered your life and your imagination and your pursuits and your commitment around the kingdom of God. You long for the day when God will overthrow the Roman Empire and will establish his kingdom on earth, and it would be a kingdom of righteousness and justice and goodness and truth. I know you seek this kingdom, and, and I know that, that it is directed, it's reoriented how you dress and how you eat and how you think and how you live and how you're raising your kids. I know you want to get into this kingdom. But here's what you need to know. Unless you are born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you, unless, you know, you know it's as if he's saying, look, Nicodemus, I, I know you've got a lot of degrees. You're well-educated. You're well-respected. You have accolades. You've got titles. But unless you go back all the way to the beginning and you disrobe yourself of all of your accolades and your uh, degrees and your titles and everything you think makes you who you are, unless you go back to the very beginning and you make yourself like an infant, that humble, that naked, that vulnerable, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. 
Now at this, Nicodemus is perplexed. Look at what he says. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And, and so, you know, Nicodemus, no doubt, is not fully misunderstanding Jesus. He understands Jesus is speaking in metaphor, but it's as if he takes the metaphor and he drives it even deeper and he pushes it to the extreme. And he says, look, you know, Jesus, what, what do you say? Can an old man crawl back into his mother's womb and be reborn? You know, ouch, it's kind of a crass response, right? But what is he doing? He's saying, he's like, Jesus, what are you expecting from me? Like, what, what are you getting at? And notice Jesus pushes it even further and he answers and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He says, look, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You know, Romans give birth to Romans and Greeks give birth to Greeks and Jews give birth to Jews. And I know you have been born into the covenant family of God. You have been a good, faithful Jew, but none of that is enough. You need something more. You need a new spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now get this. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, interacts with a wide variety of people. And he interacts with some really messed up, broken people who need a lot of help. People who need a fresh new start. You know, there was that woman caught in adultery, the very act. And then there was that man who lived off in the tombs and he was chained up and he was possessed by an entire legion of demons. And there were tax collectors and there were pimps and prostitutes. And, and, and Jesus, uh, he interacts with all of them. But note well that in, his, in the gospel, there is only one person that Jesus looks bold in the face and says, you need to be born again. And let us note well, it is not the tax collectors or the prostitutes or the adulteress or even the man with a legion of demons. It is a morally upright religious leader who is a pillar in his community. And I think what Jesus is saying to us very clearly is this. He's saying that, look, if Nicodemus needs to be born again, then everyone needs to be born again. If this guy who is a pillar in the community, the best that first century Judaism has to offer, if even he finds in himself, if there's something insufficient about him to be able to get into the kingdom of God, then how do you think the rest of us are going to do? If this guy needs a new start and a new birth, Jesus is saying, you all need a new start and a new birth. All of us need to experience this transformation, this transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And, and do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you see what's going on in here? I, I think Jesus in our text is challenging the assumption of both those inside and outside the church among religious and irreligious people. You see, what do we do? You know, what, what do we say? We say, look, it's the good, morally upright people that are in. 
You know, uh, the people on the right say it's the, it's, the, it's the religious conservatives, the morally upright people that are in, and it's those progressive people that are out. And then what do the people on the left say? They say, well, no, it's, it's the open-minded, progressive people who are in, and it's those narrow-minded, bigoted religious people that are out. But Jesus says, no, it is the humble that are in, and it's the proud who are out. Or as Tim Keller says, he says, look, you know, the, the, the red staters say that it's the blue staters who are the trouble. And those from blue states say, no, it's the red staters that are the trouble. But Jesus looks at all of us and he says, you are all in trouble. But I love you. But I love you. And I have come in order that you might know the divine life and be made new. Well, somebody says, well, look, I, I, you know, I was born okay the first time. You know, what's the stuff about the new birth? Listen, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus has a very high view of our humanity. You know, the Bible's vision of what the human person is, it's not that we're all just a bunch of dirty, you know, corrupt worms. No, you are created in the image of God. But here's the thing, what the Bible teaches is that we, though created in God's image, have become corrupted by the power of sin. And it's almost like this, have you ever been stung by a, a bee or maybe you have been bit by a spider? Or like me, years ago, I remember I was teaching a bunch of little kids how to surf and we were down in Seal Beach and I was out kind of in you know, ankle high water and I stepped on a stingray. And the thing just comes up and it just whams me, you know? And I felt like falling down and crying, but I was in front of all these little kids. So I said, oh, kids, I got stung by a stingray. I've got to go in, you know? And then I got behind closed doors and I just broke down and wept, you know? But, <laughs> but you have to stick your foot down in the water because it starts in, in the hottest water you can and it draws the poison, the toxins out. What happens though, you can get toxins, you can get poisons into a perfectly healthy arm and it's good, but as those toxins and poisons begin to go up into the arm, it begins to corrupt it and hinder what the arm is able to do. And this is what sin does. It is like a toxin, a poison that enters into humanity and it corrupts our marriages, it corrupts our relationships, it corrupts our self-image, it corrupts our families, it corrupts our neighborhoods, it corrupts nations and governments and politics. You know, the, the corrupting power of, of greed and of lust and of envy and of jealousy and of anger and of violence, these things come over us and they begin to corrupt the good divine image that's there. And so when Jesus says you must be born again, what he's saying is there is something dramatically wrong with us from birth. And we need a new life that regenerates us and that changes us. We are all people who are in need. And so Jesus looks at Nicodemus and by looking at Nicodemus and saying you must be born again, he is looking at all of us and he's saying you all need a new birth. This is who the new birth is for. But that raises the second question. What, what is the new birth anyway? What is the new birth about? Well, look back at the text. Uh, 
I want you to see Jesus answer, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So Jesus says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, they cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this little phrase, born of water and of spirit, has caused some debate among commentators. They wonder, what is Jesus talking about? And some have suggested that, well, perhaps what Jesus means is uh, born of water, maybe that's our physical birth, and then born of the spirit, that's our spiritual birth, and maybe Jesus is saying you need both a physical birth and a spiritual birth. But I don't think Jesus is saying that. It kind of goes without saying that if you're a human, you need a physical birth, amen? Amen. And some others have said, well, no, maybe what Jesus is saying is that you need to be born of water, namely you need to be water baptized as well as spirit baptized. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here either because notice the phrase born of water in the spirit is set in parallel with another phrase born of the spirit and born again. And each of these are talking about one type of new birth. And it's a birth that is wrought by the spirit of the living God. And when Jesus uses the phrase water and spirit, he is calling the teacher of Israel who knows Israel's scriptures to go back to the Old Testament and to reread again a promise, a promise that connects a new beginning, a new birth with both water and spirit. And that's a passage from Ezekiel that reads like this. God made this promise to his nation when they were in exile, and he says, look, I will come again, and I will renew you, my people, and I will take you back into my land, and I will make you new. And he says, on that day, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Do you see he's bringing these two ideas together of water and spirit? And in this text, water is a metaphor of spirit. The Holy Spirit, like water in an arid desert, brings life. It brings fertility. And so too, the spirit of the living God, like water, brings life and fertility in our lives. And God says, I will pour out my spirit on you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh And I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. Do you hear what he's describing here? He's talking about this radical inside-out transformation. You know, we, we, we oftentimes in our churches, what we're most concerned with is an external conformity to rules and of good presentation before others so that we come into church spaces like this and we try to have an external face that we present for others when a lot of us have a whole lot of wreckage going on beneath the surface in our lives. Jesus is not interested in external conformity to rules. And I think within our culture, we are very much obsessed with self-presentation. And this is what social media is all about. It's all about your ability to carefully 
take pictures of yourself in special moments of your life and edit and curate those pictures and to present them before others in order to present something to others. Or maybe to go onto Twitter and to uh, virtue signal and to make statements about some cause in our day in order to present something about yourself. But listen, Jesus is not interested in virtue signaling. He's not interested in external conformity or self-presentation. Jesus is most interested with transforming us from the inside out. Jesus wants to get under the hood in your life. And that's threatening, isn't it? Because some of us have stuff under the hood that we don't want to deal with. But this is what the true and living God does when we meet him. He exposes us so that he might work underneath the surface. And so what is the new birth all about? Well, if I could summarize it in one sentence, by the way, just a commercial break, uh, my slides are slightly out of order, I'm realizing now. So I'm just going to go back and forth a few times. Are you guys going to be okay with that? So let's summarize the new birth in one phrase. What is it? The new birth is a beautiful transformation brought about by God that is full of mystery. The new birth is a beautiful transformation. It is God working down below the surface and creating a new set of desires and giving us a brand new start in life. Look, you are no longer defined by your past, by the stupidest thing you have ever done. You have a new start and a new beginning. You don't have to have your past define your future. When you become a follower of Jesus, you have a brand new start and you have a new identity. You are no longer defined by your successes or by your titles or your degrees or your failures or your dysfunctional family, you are defined by the new family that God has adopted you into. You have been born in a new humanity, a brand new family with God as your father. So the new birth involves this beautiful transformation of identity and a new start. And yet it is full of mystery. You know, Jesus goes on and he puts it like this in the text. Look at what it says. See what I mean? The slides are all in order. But he said, the, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, the work of the Spirit bringing about this beautiful transformation is like the wind. And like the wind, you don't see it, but you see its effects. You know, if I ask you, hey, could you go out and check outside if it's windy? You don't go out and you go, do I see the wind, you know? No, you go out and you look at the trees. Are they swaying? And you look at the flag. Is it, you know, blowing? You look at the boat. Is it sailing, you know? You don't see the wind. You see its effects. And Jesus says that is like the work of the Spirit. You don't always see it, but you see its effects, and very often, like the wind, sometimes the wind comes in one massive gust and it can topple a tree over. But sometimes the wind comes in a more subtle way and something is slowly carried along. And I think our stories of the Spirit's work in our life bringing transformation can be like either one of those. 
You know, for Nicodemus, he, throughout the story in John's gospel, is going to be slowly carried along by the Spirit, where he ultimately is going to end in John 19, transformed, we believe. But it's a slow progression in his life. In chapter 4, we meet somebody else, the woman caught in a well, and it's like the Spirit of God opens up her eyes, she drops her jar, and she runs into the city, and she says, come and see a man who's told me anything, everything I've ever done. And sometimes the Spirit's work in in our life is dramatic. Sometimes it's more slow and subtle. You know, for my wife, Alicia, uh, she came to faith when she was just nine years old, and it was dramatic in the life of her family. You know, her parents, uh, there was some alcoholism in the family, and there was a lot of darkness in the home. And she said they went to a Bailey Graham crusade one night, and her mom and dad were transformed, and they came home. And she said, I don't know what happened, but it was like somebody turned the light on in our house. And she said, something happened, and I want what you want. And the whole family was baptized together. Now, for me, it was a different story. I grew up in a Christian home, and I don't know the day and time I was converted. And that might be of comfort to some of you, because some of you don't know the day and time you were converted. But I do know, when I was in 10th grade, I had one set of desires, And I had one place I was finding my identity. And then as an 11th grader, over the course of some eight, nine months, something shifted and dramatically changed in my life. And you would look at my life from 10th grade and to the 11th grade, and it's like the wind. You would say, something has moved that boy along. And this is what the Spirit of God does. He brings this beautiful transformation in our life. And it's full of mystery, and it's diverse and different. Have you experienced it? Have you experienced the divine life coming in and transforming your heart and life? Some of you, you look back on your life and you should leave today and you give God thanks because this divine life has come in. And C.S. Lewis said, it's almost like when this happened, it's like, it's like, a, uh, it's like a good infection. You know, we talk about a bad infection where you get bit or you get that poison and toxin, it starts to spread and it has this corrupting influence. But when the divine life breaks in and we're connected to the true and living God through Jesus, it starts this new spread of a good infection. Lewis puts it like this. (laughs) There it is. He says, now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God and daughters of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will rise within us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So he's like, Nicodemus, beautiful transformation is available and you need this. Even you, a religious leader, needs this. And nobody's asking, well, how can I get in on this? How do I experience this? And Jesus doesn't disappoint. Look what he says next. Uh, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? I think Jesus is at least 
putting a crack in Nicodemus's armor. He was the teacher of Israel. Do you really know so much? You know, some of us, the very first step to encountering Christ is to start questioning yourself. Do you really know that much? Is your life really that put together? I mean, how's it really been going for you running your own life? He says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, do you not believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. And here what Jesus is starting to do is he's starting to show just how it is that you and I can know this divine life in our own souls, how it is that our lives can be transformed by this brand new power from on high. And he says, it's because the Son of Man came to earth. And then he says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I just imagine Jesus engaging with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. He's talking about the new birth, and Nicodemus is trying to wrap his mind around it. And what do you mean? And what this new birth is all about? And then all of a sudden, Jesus is talking and talking, and he says, and Moses, and Nicodemus is like, boom. I'm the teacher of Israel. I know Moses. I got this. Oh, yeah, the story of the serpent. I know that one. I learned that when I was a kid. I've taught that many times. Yeah, and what happened? Well, there's this obscure story in the Old Testament. It wouldn't be obscure to Nicodemus. He was the teacher of Israel. But the children of Israel, because of their sin, are inflicted with snakes. They are being bitten with this venom, just like sin is like this poison and toxin that poisons our body. So too, the children of Israel were smitten by snakes. And they cry out to God. And God tells Moses, well, go get a bronze serpent, put it on a snake or put it on a pole and hold up the bronze serpent on this pole in front of all of the children of Israel. And whoever looked to the pole will be saved. And Jesus says this, he says, even as the serpent was lifted up on this pole, he says, so too the son of man must be lifted up. And Nicodemus knows that phrase, son of man, it refers to the Messiah. And he's thinking to himself, what do you, what do you mean? The, the, the Messiah is going to be lifted up on a pole? I mean, if you're lifted up on a pole or a tree or a cross, I mean, that's a sign that you've been cursed by God. What do you mean the Messiah is going to be lifted up on a pole that whoever would look to him would not perish but actually have eternal life and would know healing and forgiveness and could experience the new birth? And Nicodemus, no doubt, is utterly confused. He's utterly confused, and he's probably thinking about this for months and he goes on throughout his life, and we, we see him again a little bit later in the Gospel of John in chapter 7. Jesus is being accused, and Nicodemus stands up, and he defends Jesus before the religious people. 
The one who came at night now starts to speak boldly. But then several months after that, Nicodemus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. He knew all the conversations that were happening that week about Jesus, the one who claimed to be Messiah. And he knew the discussions, how there was going to be a, a betrayal. And he watched Jesus getting betrayed. And then he watched Jesus ultimately, you can almost imagine him wondering, you know, for months, like, what does this mean? Messiah lifted up on a pole. And you can just imagine Nicodemus in Jerusalem looking up beyond the crowds and seeing off just in the distance, Jesus now lifted up on a bloody Roman cross. And all of a sudden, the coin drops. So this is what it meant all along. This is how I can know new life. Because Messiah, God incarnate, came among us, and he tasted death. He himself absorbed in his own body the curse for my sin. He took the venom in himself, and he died ultimately to the point of death on a cross so that all who believe on this one who died might live. All who see the one who bore the curse might know new life and blessing. And John summarizing this whole thing says, and you know what this means? It means God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, I don't know where you're at today. I imagine probably most of you, you have experienced something of this divine life. And I pray that you would walk out of this place today full of gratitude and joy for the life that God has brought inside of you. But I think there are others in here. Maybe you've been invited by a friend. Maybe you wandered in. You've been around with us for a bit. And you've been trying to figure this Christianity thing out for a while now. Maybe like Nicodemus, you keep coming back because you're curious and you're seeking. And that's a really good place. And I just want you to consider that maybe the reason right now why you have been so curious is because God has stirred something in you. The wind of God's spirit has been blowing in you and it has cultivated in you a curiosity. And you think, what, like, and maybe you're at a point right now where you're like, what's the next thing I need to do? You need to look to Jesus. You need to entrust your life to Jesus. You need to acknowledge that on your own, you have been inflicted with something that is corrupting and that is dark and you recognize it. Yes, you have been made in God's image. There is so much good there, but there is something dark. There is something that you find yourself being corrupted by and Christ came into this world in order to break all of that away from your life so that you can know new life. And so he invites you to come and to entrust yourself to him. Father, we ask now that as we approach this table, that you would open up our eyes afresh to your great love for us.
And I pray, oh God, that your love would be that which nourishes and sustains our hearts and lives. Some of us feel weak and battered down and discouraged. You know who you are. Lord Jesus, would this be food to strengthen our discouraged and troubled hearts? So come work among us now, even as we share together in this practice. Amen.